0: Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone seeking to cope in a world gone wrong. Um, Coping in a world gone wrong is the name of a free class offered by Michael Mead, uh, Mosaic Voices, and that class is on Thursday, April 7th at 6 o'clock. And if you'd like more information, you can get to mosaicvoices.org. That's mosaicvoices.org, Michael Mead. And yet, I mean, I think there's so much, I mean, we're inundated with all that's wrong in the world right now, right? But there's so much right in the world, Um, and story this week. Um, uh, an anonymous donor buys a North, northern Minnesota ski resort for a park land and a campground, and it's going to open in Park Rapids. i just donating the land for the future. Um, and later in the show, we're going to learn about Midwest Grit. Uh, Midwest Grit is Midwest Grains and Resource Immersive Training. So they're working on bo- boosting small grain farmers um, in the Midwest. So how cool is that? And also, um, right now, is somebody's working in all sorts of ways to improve the food system. Uh, uh, with us is Des- uh, Dusty um, Hines. Hines.
1: Hines. yes. Hins. Sorry uh, about that. Laura, thanks so much for having me. It's it's great to be here. I have been a longtime listener of AM nine fifty, going back to probably fifteen years ago when I was listening to Tom Hartman quite a bit. Wow. Um, so it's, it's it's good to be here.
0: And you've been very active in the food system in lots of ways. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, well, <clears throat> I, I grew up in Richfield. Um, I went to Augsburg, kind of started learning about the world and um, basically yeah, how messed up it is in kind of like a big macro perspective. But then I felt like sustainable organic agriculture was kind of like a practical micro response to the deeper like, systemic um, issues that we face. Um, so I first got into urban farming in 2011 in Minneapolis. Um, and then I moved out to Philly with a, a previous partner of mine and did some urban urban ag, um, or as we called it back then, kind of like guerrilla gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of coincided with the Occupy Philadelphia and Occupy Wall Street movement. And that's where I met Nate. And we eventually, we branched out down to South Jersey out, out of Philly. And we co-founded an organization that is a nonprofit called the Experimental Farm Network. And um, really, I mean, the big primary component of that at this point is that we manage a pretty cool uh, seed company that features uh, small-scale organic seed savers and uh, plant breeders from across the country who are doing really important um, work adapting you know, ver- uh, plant varieties to their, to their own um, bioregions. Um, we also have a big focus on... Um, carbon sequestering, uh, perennial edible uh, plants and crops. Um, So that's kind of a little bit of my um, background with the Experimental Farm Network. Um, I have a new thing going on as well. Uh, Just a couple years ago, me and my brother. um, And by the way, I I co-founded the organization, uh, the Experimental Farm Network, uh, with Nate Kleinman, who is my longtime um, friend and collaborator in all this. And then I also, when I... When I moved back to Minnesota, I we, we brought the seed company as, um, operations here, and I managed that here with my brother Colty and his partner Kiera. And then just a couple years ago, me, Colty, and Kiera um, bought a little garden center in Minneapolis uh, called Agrarian Seed and Garden. Um, we're going into our second year there, and it's kind of like the manifestation of like a garden center, like the logical conclusion, like after like the experimental <laughs> farm network. So we have a lot of the seeds there. We have many of the same like plant varieties, um, that are like sold as plants. Like we curate the whole vegetable collection that I like source. Um, I have grown by, um, organic farmer friends of mine, and we have a lot of native perennial plants, many, uh, lots of other berries. We also have annual flowers. We have a huge herb selection. Um, so those are kind of the two, um, Big things I have going on
0: now. We're going to get into. I want to unwind a lot of um, a lot of issues like um, plant sovereignty, our sovereignty over our lives, and how important that is connected to food sovereignty. Totally. Which is which is um, and 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 so right now, uh, let's describe how the current system works. So a lot of plant breeders um, actually quote unquote own the seeds, and then they have copyright, and they actually or not copyright. What's it called?
1: Um, pat, patents, <laughs> patents, pat, patents, patents over like certain traits and certain genes and stuff. Um, and
0: I just, I that's that to me, um, is really icky for a lot of reasons. Um, th- let's talk about what that means. So, um,
1: yeah, I mean the dominant, um, the dominant system is very proprietary and very profit-driven and. Um, I think it's all, yeah, it's leading to, uh, the destruction of the, like, of the planet. Um, the dominant corn and soy, um, chemically dependent GMO industrial, um, system, I think is one of the biggest threats to our future really. And, um, trying to figure out alternatives to that is kind of what is, is really important. It's basically kind of like a mission of EFN. Now, one thing, um... Now, as a, I like the term that I referred to some, that I came up with something called the genetic commons, where like this idea, and I think it's so important to think about. So human beings have basically been saving seeds and, um, and propagating them for 10,000 years, let's say now, give or take something in that realm. And the idea that like a modern corporation could come along and identify like a certain trait and then be able to put like proprietary, um, patent rights on that seems like so fundamentally like wrong to me after like, like, you know, the, like the, 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 human ingenuity, the work that went into human beings, like generation after generation, selecting plants for 10,000 years. And then, oh, just after all that work is done for 10,000 years, and then it's like, oh, here, a corporation comes along and can just, like, patent something. So, I mean, there is something absolutely fundamentally wrong about how our society operates, you know, um, these days. And, um, you know, what's one thing that the Experimental Farm Network, we we actually do pledge some varieties to um, certain plant um, varieties to something called the Open Source Seed Initiative, which... um, is kind of, you might consider it, now, if it went into actually, like, a court battle, I guess I think it would be interesting to see, like, if this would, I guess, hold up. But um, it it is a beautiful, like, concept that's been put forward by um, a few different, like, plant um, seed company people that were kind of, like, out from, like, the West Coast, as well as a couple um, University of Madison, uh, uh, Wisconsin-Madison, like, professors, and basically, they came up with this idea where, if someone does improvement on a particular plant species, um, you can pledge that variety to something called the Open Source Seed Initiative, which, in theory, would protect it from ever being a privatized or like like ha- having like this particular variety like have a patent um, put on it. Um, so we do pledge certain, uh, some varieties to the open source seed initiative. I think it's a really important concept that I think is more just important as like, a um, it's kind of like a piece of activism to like get these ideas out there. But I think it's something that probably needs to really be really expounded upon, um, for, you know, moving forward
0: right and you know it's it's in, in such uh, one thing I've been saying a lot on this show is life is complicated and you know in in complicated times I, I don't want to just be glib and say you know these little trite trait little me or, or trite little memes because it is complicated but um life is so um Life is not just about money, you know, and, and we have these we have these uh, almost a narrative consciousness that's actually killing the planet, you know, and what's the root of those narrative consciousness and And how do we find a different way of living that makes more sense that's kinder to the planet and kinder to each other?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, um, and so we're doing it. Now, Now you've got 500 different seeds that you're actually sourcing from independent farmers, and people can go online and buy these seeds. So let's so, talk about some of those
1: plants. Sh- sh- so, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, our, our website is uh, efnseeds.com, um, and that's the Experimental Farm Network, and um the first few years, it was primarily me and Nate were the primary growers of the seeds. But as time has went on, and we've been to all these like um, organic farming conferences, and also specifically like seed-focused conference, like the Organic Seed um, Conference that happens in Corvallis, Oregon, every two years, where in like in, right around Corvallis and in Oregon, like a huge amount of uh, organic seed is produced for like the rest of the country, um, and so. As time went on, we made all these great connections, also through social media. And now, me and Nate account for less and less of the seeds that are grown every year because there's just more and more really interesting um, seed growers across the country who are reaching out to us, who are doing really important you know work preserving you know certain varieties and uh, breeding new varieties, um, all types of like in, um, intensive selection process where again, maybe you start like a thousand pepper plants and you put them into, uh, like a, a situation where they're going to be in like a cold, a a colder greenhouse and, and maybe it's like 35 or 40 degrees and you pick the ones that are like the most, um, that thrive the best in that condition. So really important breeding work that's being done for plants that are adapted, that are, that are being bred for organic systems.
0: This diversity in genetics commons is really important for
1: the future and the present. It absolutely is, and it feels great to be able to, um, you know, put the money – because, you know, what's interesting, too, is a lot of these growers might not have – in most cases wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to sell their seed through most other conventional um, seed companies. And so we feel really great, like, you know – Putting money into the pockets of these people who we feel like are doing the really important work on the ground, developing the new varieties, um, and you know, pl- you know, experimenting with lots of different genetic diversity. Um, because yeah, in a in a change in a situation with um, climate change and and everything that's going on, like we need to be constantly and um, like you know very deliberately uh, on like, continuing to. So Adapt plants to our bio Yeah, region.
0: we're going to take a break. We're going to learn more about your gardening center, and we're also going to learn about um, an effort to increase um, small and medium-sized grain farmers in the Midwest. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. And um, how do we build a resilient uh, food system, especially um, all the news Um Uh, So right now, with everything going on in uh, in Iran, uh, in 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 the Ukraine right now, um, uh, huge implications for the food system. Uh, David Beasley with the World Food Program. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are among the world's biggest producers and exporters of grain, and the disruption uh, that that is causing. um, Here's a quote from him: "Half of Africa's wheat imports come from uh, Ukraine and Russia." Also, there's a major problem with fertilizers. So. Right now, the dominant food system is highly, highly global. It's part of a global system. And it is painfully, um, there's a fear, and we'll, we'll know what's going to happen in the future, but this globalization is ultimately fragile, very fragile. And so, how do we build an anti fragile food system? And one way is to encourage local production. And so joining me right now to talk about um, a program to help um, farmers um, do local grain. And I love your name. It's called Midwest Grit Program. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Um, Kristen Johnson. um, Tell us about the Grit Program.
2: Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So Midwest Grit uh, is an acronym that stands for Grains Resource and Immersive Training. It's a collaborative... Collaborative program coming from Michael Field's Agricultural Institute in East Troy, Wisconsin. Artisan Grain Collaborative, which is a regional hub and network nonprofit, and University of Wisconsin Madison's Horticultural Program O Grain, which is a gr- organic grains resource opportunity. Uh, it's a year-long, paid, pure training program for small and mid-sized farmers in the upper Midwest. So we are serving uh, farmers beyond the borders of Wisconsin into Minnesota, Michigan, Illinois, even further Iowa, Indiana, potentially even Tennessee and some Eastern parts of the Dakotas. Uh, The intention here is to share a peer network of food-grade grain farmers that can collaborate and support each other in building a resilient grain, um, grain shed in the Midwest.
0: Awesome. It's so important. Okay, so now you have a deadline coming up of March 30th, and um, so tell us about how people can apply for this program if they want and how it works.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it is a paid program, so we have our application page open on our website, uh, Midwest Grit. Uh, The application is available to apply through the end of the month, March 31st, Um, and then we're recruiting our first cohort, which is a small group of 30 farmers uh, with a wide range of backgrounds and experiences in agriculture. This is a, a program for farmers that aspire to grow food grade grains or may already be implementing these crops into their rotations and a chance to enhance um, their skill sets uh, to have a, a successful and sustainable business
0: on their farm. And I know you're looking also for women. And Dusty, do you want to hop in here? I mean, how important is this to own our own food system?
1: Really important. I, I have a uh, Hi, Krista. I have a question for you. Are you, you guys um, doing any work on Kernza or anything or any thoughts on Kernza?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It uh, definitely falls into the food grade uh, grain category. And maybe maybe and could, I, you,
1: could you also explain what it actually is?
2: Sure. Um, <laughs> so at Michael Fields, we have an agroecologist, Nicole Touches. She is uh, our lead researcher and partic- uh, participating in the perennial pantry program, which um, is looking at the, the yield and profitability of Kernza, which is a perennial wheat and I apologize because I am fastly learning about the grain systems that are have potential in our food system, but she is the expert there. It's a, uh, Opportunity to reduce uh, tillage and rotations so, on your farms.
0: So, yeah. so, so sometime in May, I'm going to have uh, Ben Livingston with the um, uh, with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy talking about this uh, webinar that happened this week, and it was basically about um, uh, climate change and the type of farming that's most resilient to climate change, and some of the issues going on on in the international level, really questioning um, some of the, um, you know, what what will make the world most sustainable is actually moving out of monoculture and towards agroecology. But to do that, there's not, it's a difficult path right now, correct? Economically, it's a difficult path.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so many barriers to farmers already that exist and diversifying your production just adds another layer to that. Process, But overall, if you're diversifying your crop production, you're also diversifying your fields and the ecologies that live within them. And that makes your farm both as um, ecologically but also uh, as a business more resilient and adaptable to some of these crises that we see affecting our food systems.
0: And Dusty, you you and I were talking a little bit about that, um, too. I mean... uh, yeah, let's let's all grow more grains and have it all local. But it's really tough for the farmers that are doing that because it's just not the dominant system.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'm not really a purist about, like, a whole lot these days. I, I think there definitely needs to be a room for, uh, like, experimenting with a lot of, like, small-scale, like, food-grade grain production for, like, human beings to be to, – like. To, for human beings to be consuming um, rather than like so much of the grain that's currently grown like basically mostly fed to animals. Um, and having said that, I'm also ju- a huge proponent of like agroforestry and actually planting like more nut trees. And I know that's like that, like basically we need it all. Like, wh- like cause it, a lot, a lot of this, yeah. maybe this agroforestry stuff, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in developing the systems and developing and like you know, improving varieties. And also, you plant a, a, tree and like a, a chestnut tree might take ten years to produce nuts or fifteen years to be having like really good harvests and and so we definitely need it all. We need like this. We need this grain program that's happening and like encouraging more like diversified small scale grain production and then I think we also have to be thinking about like com, like also completely reducing. Um, or eliminating tillage um, in, some, in some cases. That's one of my goals on my farm is, is to basically plant a whole bunch of nut and fruit trees and um but i that, but that's like you know even a privilege like a lot of people don't have like that ability yeah, that they they privilege, need yeah
0: they need they, something right now
1: they need something every single year and that's the way that like this you know whole civilization has basically developed around like annual grain production and um trying to do it in a more sustainable way uh, with more like more organics more cover crops more soil converse, con- conservation um, all of these things um, is super important.
0: Without a doubt. So uh, tell us again about the GRIT program and uh, and how people can find out about it.
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just to piggyback off Dusty's comment there, I think that the key here is collaboration. And so a big component of Midwest GRIT is that peer network and engagement that will last longer than a year. And that's what adds resiliency to our system is filling in uh, the gaps where some farmers are still coming up and learning about these food systems or others that have expertise in them and um, can share that knowledge. And that's what's going to help feed all of our communities. So Midwest Grit, again, uh, the application is open until the end of the month, March 31st. And you can apply at MidwestGrit.org.
0: So play. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to take a break and thinking about Midwest Grid, and we'll be back with more conversation with Dusty. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. <laughs> Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline. and with me in studio is Dusty. and Dusty, there's a, a garden store that you're um tell us about the garden store,
1: yeah. um well, uh, actually in the very early um days of the pandemic, um in uh, it was April twenty twenty. Um, this little garden center that I actually didn't even know about. I mean, I know about, like, Mother Earth gardens and stuff, but I also had been in Philly and Jersey for six years, and so I had never heard about this place, but it was called Plantique, and um, it's at 5152 Hiawatha um, Avenue in South Minneapolis. The, na- the the original name was Plantique. Our new name is Agrarian Seed and Garden. Um, but I went up there and met the previous owner. It was on the market and kind of, like, um, made the relationship happen, basically, and um, his name was Bruce, um, really good guy, and we ended up being the only people that put an offer in that wanted to keep it as a garden center. And, I mean, this was kind of Bruce Life's work. He had made it a garden center. Actually, this particular building, I think in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, had been a gas station, and it went through a, a, several other, a few different other iterations um, throughout like the following decades. But around 2000, Bruce started a little garden center there, and he definitely didn't want to see it, like, sold to developers or whatever. And um, ultimately, he actually took a little less money to (laughs) sell it to us, to, like, keep it as a garden center. And... um,
0: Can we just exhale on that a little bit? Because, you know, life is not all transactional, is it? It's
1: life's relational. And so, and Bruce, who was really also like leading into our first year, which was last year, we had uh, several meetings with Bruce um, going through um, um, plant collections with these wholesale suppliers. And it's been a great process. He also did it on a contract for deed. Um, And so it was real. so, and then... The neighborhood there, the East Nokomis neighborhood, which is where this is, um, has been just super, super supportive. Um, they were so happy that this place was not just developed and made into like a little mini condo, <laughs> condo or something. And so, the, yeah, the support from the community has just been resounding. And we're trying to create, um, you know, a kind of like a practical garden center that... I mean, my, my forte has always been vegetable production, in particular, like vegetable seed production. And of course, like I, you know, have the whole seed company thing going on. And to be honest, I didn't even know about a lot of these native perennial flower plants um, when we bought this garden center. So it's been a whirlwind of an experience learning about um, those things. And also, you know, my brother Colti and his partner Kiera, we in a, we all in on it together, and you know they've been also just so indispensable in. I mean, we redid the whole interior of the place, and th- those guys are also just really good with like logistics and organizing stuff. And so we, it's been, um, it's been a team effort, and I think we're pretty proud of what we've kind of created there. And we're now we're going into our second year. Um, the first year there was tons of learning lessons. Um, I, I don't think we didn't know. Um, we didn't know to what extent people were all about these native perennial flowers for one. That was probably our number one plant category. And, um, and of course I'm sitting here trying to like promote all these vegetables and stuff. And people are coming in like <laughs> buying like whole big things, the annual flowers and like the native perennial flowers. And I'm like, Hey, what about all these, like, what about the vegetables? Um, but I, I, um, curate the vegetable collection each year. And uh, we source things from, I will say this, everything in the store is like sourced as ethically as possible. Um, And so with the vegetable seed collection, uh, that, that plants that with the vegetable plants that we sell at the store, um, some of those seeds come from the experimental farm network, which is our own, like, you know, in-house seed company. But I also source things from other small seed companies as well, like North Circle Seeds. They're up in, uh, this guy, Zach Page, he's in Northern Minnesota where he's specifically trying to breed plant varieties adapted to like very Northern, um, like the Northern Midwest basically, um. And so I saw some things from him and I saw some things from adaptive seeds who are out in Oregon. Um, I got a few things from turtle tree seeds who are in New York. And so everything about this vegetable, like, I guess there's going to be things and plants that I have for sale at this store that, like, no other garden center, like, in Minnesota has. (laughs) And everything is, like, um, really, you know, well thought out and – what else? We also have mushroom grow kits in the store. I have a friend of mine um, whose um, his name is Mohammed uh, Sawaidan, and he um, is a co-owner of a, uh, of this mushroom growing facility up in New Hope, Minnesota, called uh, New Hope Pharmacy. And he, they make these um, – they have a whole facility where they can sterilize the media and inoculate uh, all these different, like, edible mushroom varieties. And so we, you know, buy those off of him, um, and we have a little fridge at our store where we sell these mushroom grow kits. They were actually a big hit last year um, where you just take it home and you cut open the, the plastic and, like, mushrooms go, grow right out of it. Uh, we also have some uh, herbal products in the store from Maya Brown. We have uh, – um, also, my friend Gil has his own CBD company where he, he's up in um, Washburn, Wisconsin, just kind of by like Ash, Ashland, and he grows all of his own CBD and makes his own products, and we have those, um, we have those products in the store. So we've tried to curate an interesting store um, that has a lot of kind of unique things to offer to people. Um, so... You know um all that is
0: is is so cool uh it is um it's revolutionary and and it's uh i don't know I'm, i am i i just love to see this it's just it's fun to hear about because it's especially compared to all the other stuff we hear but that you're actually doing that and um and are you having fun with it?
1: I'm having a good time. I think part of the plan is to get other people involved as well, even as time goes on. Like we're going to be hiring, I think like a friend of mine this year. Um, And so I I think I'm, it's, I, I think I never really wanted to be a person that was like cranking out two or three acres of like organic vegetable produce and selling it to, I don't know, people at a farmer's market that might even be somewhat well-to-do or something. I it was. I never really. I what I loved about like the seeds and like now this garden center is like we're empowering other people to go and grow their own food, and so I that's why I kind of really love the seed company and the garden center is because it's like hey, like we all need to be like, you know. And there's totally a place to go to the farmers market. and There's Oops. a place to really try to seek out like your local organic like farmer producers. I also think there's a really important place for like. Everyone trying to take responsibility and starting to try to grow some of their own food, or maybe that's not your thing. Well, you can also be trying to create habitat by growing some of the like the native pollinator plants, and that's also cool. Driving around the East Nacomas neighborhood, there like there's people who have like completely have like a wild lawn. Like it is, it is not like the suburbs over there. I have to say, and it's so cool to see that. And you see like insects buzzing around people's lawns and stuff, and all these like native perennial flower plants. So I think we like if you have. A yard, you know. There's a little something, something that can be done, basically. And and being able to provide seeds and plants for people to do that is, I think, a pretty. It's a enriching thing for me, I guess. So yeah,
0: and connect this to the um, Occupy movement that you were active in.
1: Yeah, well, I, I moved out to Philly in 2011 with a previous partner, and it, that was co- that was 2011, and it was coinciding with like I actually moved to Philadelphia five days after the Occupy. Um, Philly movement started. Uh, Occupy Wall Street had started up in New York on September 17th, and Philly, I think, started on October 6th, and I moved to Philly on October 11th, 2011. And I was able to do a couple months worth of, uh, well, i sorry, a a couple years worth of networking in a matter of, like, a couple of months, and I met so many people, and it kind of, like, made, honestly, I I attribute that to being, like, the definitive thing that changed my life, because there was this, ended up being this um, urban um, kind of guerrilla gardening group out of Occupy Philly that was called Occupy Vacant Lots. And we would go around to these different um, parts of Philly and start these little gardens and stuff. And that's really where I met Nate. And, you know, Nate's um, he had been saving seeds for many years and he had the whole idea for the Experimental Farm Network. And we just kind of like clicked and we were like, hey, like, let's get out of the city. Let's Let's find some land on a little bit larger scale. And so, honestly... I, me, and Nate still kind of refer to the experimental experimental farm network as like essentially like an outgrowth of the Occupy movement, yeah. because that's where we met, and that's kind of like the spirit, you know, that the, we the that we have brought to it all. I, um, I
0: mean, before we uh, before we started the show, you, I, David Graeber, who uh, we both read the book Debt: The Five Thousand Year History, was considered you know whatever the intellectual founder of the Occupy movement. And you said he has a new book out that you're reading now. I haven't.
1: Yeah, I'm almost um, done with the book. Well, his his new book is The Dawn of Everything. It was published posthumously because um, David Graeber died pr- about a year and a half ago now. Um, but this was kind of his, like, magnum opus, you might say. He had spent 10 years writing and researching it with his other archaeologist, David Wengro. And Graeber himself is an anthropologist. So it was an anthropologist and an archaeologist. And they basically have kind of flipped a lot of, like, conventional notions of, like... Indigenous, what what, what the the conventional myths and certain things that we tell ourselves um, from like a Western civilization perspective um, have, a lot of these things have just been upended in this book. And it's really, really fascinating. Honestly, um, you know, there's an anecdote from the book that I want to tell, which is so fascinating to me. And basically, and it's actually kind of crazy because it has to do with Ukraine. But one of the stories in this book is that around 3500 BC, there basically were like kind of homesteader-type agrarian, like, mini-cities that might have been in, like, the 50,000-person range, and they were, like, you know, growing, like, a lot of their own food. They had, like, you know, diverse orchards growing with, like, fruits. They were also, like, hunting on, the, like, the periphery, and they also, I think, were, like, running sheep and goats. And so the evidence, like, the archaeological record is, like, pretty, you know, um, pretty good with, like, what, the, what that supports this whole thing. And it was so reading this was, like so fascinating to see that like oh like human beings were basically oh another important part of this is that they were living um, it was it was a very non-hierarchical society there was not any big temples or anything like that and so um, and so they're actually we could actually point to a point of this part of like history where human beings were living in small like a somewhat small scale. Um, mini cities they call them like it was actually in the book they call them mega sites or something and l- l- living basically a sustainable agrarian type of life that was like in somewhat like in balance with its like surrounding like uh ecology as well as n- like non-hierarchical and there was like basically mostly like an egalitarian society from what the the evidence is showing
0: and i'm gonna just exhale again i mean you know I, I think we all really want that. I mean, the quote that comes back all the time, Paul Wellstone, we all do better when we all do better. This, this way that we're living right now where some people I – mean, there's a difference of lifespan. I mean, that's that's how harsh it is right now, of eight years, depending on the zip code that you're raised in. I mean, there is, there is so much injustice and, and so much wrong with the way we're living, destroying the planet, plastics in the ocean, destroying our water – the soil and and so how do we take this system how do how do i respond to this system in a healthy way you know and and finding that and finding that place to be healthy
1: yeah um oh geez. i, I have to say like I have this thing I've kind of been, and this is kind of like maybe like the cynical or dark side of me. And like and when we're living in, in weird times, we're also living in like dark times. Honestly, like to just be frank about it, like it's it's kind of. I mean, it's all cool to like run a little garden center and everything, but at the same time, like like on it, like we are fundamentally like killing this planet, and um, we absolutely n- need to change like everything about our way of life, and that. Can be like kind of like a daunting um, type thing to grapple with, and so like I think pretty much yeah everything about modern technological capitalist industrial society almost needs to be flipped on its head. Um,
0: and let's do that. Let's just flip it on its head. You know why not? <laughs> You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with uh, with Dusty and some more conversation about food freedom. I don't know what- Kill or die for? I mean, um, so you're welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline. and you know, I, I've been trying. To, I was trying to think of these things that I want to say, and it's so complex. And again, life is complex. But you mentioned it on the last segment, Dusty, that these are actually really dark times, and sometimes, and a lot of people are in really super dark places, and. And, and one thing that's helpful for me, and I don't know if it's helpful for other people, but is, is to really um, sort of try to go beyond, and I, I nicknamed it, uh, the narrative consciousness. And so, I mean, like David Graeber's work is that life is so much bigger than well, the stories we tell. Like, you know, sometimes we have these stories like, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and there's nothing you can do about it. And there's all this narrative consciousness flowing around, and that's why I love that John Lennon song. But... In that, you know, how do we how do we just feel something? And now I want to jump to just like simple old hazelnuts, and and but that's also the feeling that I get when I garden, right? And so that's the one thing about gardening is really connecting it to having a better relationship with the planet, um, getting some nice micro uh, in our in our hands by being around that dirt, and and the mental health effects of gardening. And now let's talk about the beauties of hazelnuts.
1: So one thing I actually forgot to mention about the this thing I just said about the um, the. David Graeber's story about 3500 BC in Ukraine is that actually hazelnut was a big part of their diet. So they were cultivating hazelnuts back then. Um, And so hazelnuts. So, um, yes, hazelnuts, and I think more broadly the concept of agroforestry, um, I think are absolutely critical to our future. Um, I've been involved uh, for years now with a farm in southern Minnesota called Badger Set, and this Mm -hmm. guy Philip Rudder has been. Basically, he's been breeding hazelnut, chestnut, and hickory pecan, which is a cross between hickory and pecan, um, for like thirty-five years now. And I have
0: I have one of his chestnuts, and I have four of his hazelnuts. That's really I'm, cool to hear. that I do, and I'm getting I'm getting hazelnuts now. I'll
1: have to come and check those out yes. sometime. Um, and so Philip's whole thing is that you know annual tillage, and it is basically. At the end of the day, and I and I do tend to agree with this. Like I'm pretty skeptical of the idea that human beings can like forever and ever and ever like till the soil every single year and like for uh, for the production of basically like annual grains. Like I think we're it's here. It's it's not going any away, going away anytime soon. Nor would I hope that because that's like where so much of humanity's cal- food calories come from. But I also think, I mean. At the end of the day, it is destructive to the soil, and I'm not convinced that like we could do it for the next like you know two thousand years or something like that. Um, the way that where it's currently being done. So one, alt- uh, so a, a big al- po- possible alternative to this is this idea of like larger scale agroforestry systems, um, where you don't have to till the soil anymore. Uh, chestnuts are something I actually want to grow a lot of at uh, my farm, and. Basically, the the nuts fall off the tree. It's a saleable product. It also, you know, and, and, you know, you can also make um, chestnut into, like, a chestnut meal, which is a (laughs) shelf-stable... Um, And and
0: this is an old detail. So I don't know exactly where it came from. But like, you know, we have the song chestnuts roast in open fire. People used to be able to, you know, it was a gig economy, and they would actually collect the chestnuts. And that that was like 10% of their annual income was just going around collecting hazelnuts or connecting, uh, collecting the chestnuts and selling it another product. You know, it's a story that I think is accurate.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, hazelnuts used to, be, or sorry, chestnuts used to be all up and down the the, the whole eastern part of the country, and then um, in the 1900s, a blight came in from China and basically wiped out most of the American chestnut. Now, what's cool about Badger said is basically they've had five different species of chestnut growing there, and be, like you know, including the Chinese chestnut and some of these other ones that basically carry the blight resistance in them. And so the whole thing at, at Badger's and this goes for hazelnuts as well, is a term that Philip uses is called a hybrid swarm, where you're basically taking many, like a, few, a, a few different species and you're, plant, you're growing them all in the same place, and you're gonna, like, it's an ongoing selection process, which for, which for perennial trees like this, like the process might play out over like 100 years or something with like several generations of plants. Um, so one and, thing um, – oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. I just wanted to comment before I forgot is um, emerald ash is really causing a problem. I mean we're losing several trees because of emerald ash. So and and uh, so we need diverse trees um, and, you know, the tree canopy is so important and we're really hurting the tree canopy. Now, chestnuts are awesome for the tree canopy.
1: Totally. They're big. Um, and, um, yeah, chestnuts are big. They're great for the tree canopy. They also produce like, you know – Food that human beings can eat. Um, hazelnuts. We, sh- I should say this. We actually do. Are and we don't have chestnuts as plants at the garden center this time, but we do actually have these badger set hazelnut plants there. Um, our Our website is agrarianseed.com, um, and there's just a few things that we're pre-selling for the season there. We do have seed potatoes for sale. If anyone wants to reserve their like potatoes for the season, but we also have um, hazelnut plants that can be pre-ordered there. And no, I think there's actually, I've even joked about a term called like suburban agro or like suburban agro forestry or something. But like I, but we, yeah, so we, we do have some of these hazelnut plants for sale. And I think, um, I think it's important for people to be planting food producing perennial woody plants i mean i think it's like it's i think it's a great idea it's fun. um and yeah
0: so i know we're down to our last minute and a half i want to make sure i give a chance to give a shout out how people can find you your facebook page and all that type stuff
1: so if you want you could friend me on facebook um that's dusty hins that's d-u-s-t-y space h-i-n-z um the 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 seed, the experimental farm network is efnseeds.com, where that's just like an online com- basically we ship we ship seeds all over the place the garden center is um agrarian and garden that's at 5152 hiawatha um in south minneapolis and that is like a few blocks south of minnehaha falls but it's on the west side of um of hiawatha just next to the light rail so we're tucked into this little little corner right there. The website for that is agrarianseed.com. You can learn more about us and, you know, reserve some hazelnut plants if you want. And... Yeah, that's, um, and also I'll be in the I'll be at the Garden Center almost every day in the month of May if you want to stop in and say what up and meet me and, you know, talk about these big ideas and, you know, riff on society with me. Like, that's kind of the point of the Garden Center, too, is like I'm selling plants, but honestly, I love the conversations with the people that come in riff there. Riff on the so. society.
0: I'm going to read from your office. We dream of millions more people, especially young people, revitalizing rural farmland, homesteading, building local foodways, adapting plants to their bioregion, hunkering down for the long haul. Joyfully in tough times.
1: So you're listening to Food
0: Freedom Radio, um, Progressive Voice of Minnesota, AM 950. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks, Laura.